Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast trying to claim they always knew Jesse Lingard was a midfield maestro. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Ghibli Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. Some big news coming to all UK-based football fans this week with the announcement that fans may be able to attend the final games of the season with some of the lockdown restrictions being eased uh, later this year coming into the summer. Uh, With some big upsets in this week's round of games, we'll be looking at whether a certain manager has lost his luster and if another side is bravely battling misfortune or just making too many excuses. First off, though, in what is both an amusing and a surprising turn of events, um, Aston Villa have had an interesting one this week, where they've banned their players from further taking part in the Fantasy Premier League. Yeah, so this is something that has kind of been growing for a while. I think um, a lot of people have been investing a lot of time into fantasy football, maybe more so this year than ever, and that is saying something. And mm. there has been a growing trend among fans of kind of finding players as teams on fantasy football and checking them for news about uh, team info and and injuries and things like that. It happened with Leeds a couple of times during the season and most recently it happened with Aston Villa and they have recently come out and and banned all of their players from participating in fantasy football because of these quote-unquote leaks. Yeah, so so just to sort of frame the story for anyone who has not really got in touch with this somehow... um, on Thursday, rumours came out that Jack Grealish had picked up an injury and wouldn't be available for uh, Villa's really, really big game they had on the weekend against Leicester. Uh, and we see rumours like this all the time. Obviously, there's always these different ITK accounts on Twitter and different rumours that say, oh, you know, so-and-so's injured. But this rumour was sort of supported by two things. Firstly, Aston Villa releasing photos of their training sessions on Friday morning, in which Grealish was suspiciously absent. Um, and then following Friday evening's fantasy football deadline, because the first game of the, the block of games Games, the game week, as it were, um, was that Friday evening at 8, so 7, 6.30 rather, was when it was locked in. Um, there was a realisation by some keen-eyed fans that quite a few Villa insiders had transferred Greedish out of their teams. Uh, this includes three players and two people who worked at the club, a sports physio, uh, a sports physio and uh, I believe uh, one of the coaches. Um, so I think the first thing to sort of observe here is that there's been a lot of talk about, oh, you know, this fancy football thing's been the leak. But the first and most important thing is that the fancy football leak came after the fact of the time that Villa like published their own photos where Greenish wasn't there. And so when Dean Smith came out immediately afterwards and was like, I've heard there's been a leak, the first thing was I was like, well, fancy football. And then I was like, also the photos you chose to publish? Maybe not him specifically, but I was like, that seems maybe a little bit short-sighted. Yeah, true. I mean, I think there's definitely a growing trend on social media and stuff of, of clubs just typically do post videos of their um, practices and things like that on social media so it's not unheard of that people will glean information from it and say oh well so and so is is coming up and training with the first team now as opposed to training training with the youth teams or the reserves or so and so is back in full training from coming back from injury and yeah it happens all the time and it's definitely something that that I thought as well uh it's just an obvious thing that the club taking quite a high horse line about this and that's maybe slightly unwarranted. Well, my that was my first thought was I was like that this is one of two leaks and one of them was an official club leak. This it's not like a mole. It's a very very open leak. Uh, and my second thought was that I think Dean Smith has gone about this all wrong by banning all of his players. Um, I think I saw. Um, some commentators on I think it was the Ornstein podcast talking about how they reckon that Marcelo Bielsa is going to have someone in the lead setup now whose job it'll be to pour through all the fancy football presences of other Premier League clubs I actually think that they they have really undersold what Bielsa's going to do I think that Bielsa's going to go a step further and he's going to be instructing his staff to create several teams and transfer random players in and out to throw off opposition sides <laughs> I mean I would not put it past him it's going to be like, hey guys, all transfer out Bamford ahead of this game so that they think we aren't going to be at full strength. Then when he starts... To be fair, I mean, legitimate strategy at this point. I think... Uh, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's the point, isn't it? Just that everyone's doing anything they possibly can to glean information. And realistically, if you as a club want to take such a hard line on this, then you need to be doing whatever you can as well. It's not like this is the only leak, as you mentioned. That being said, I do think that kind of videos and clips from inside the training ground suggest things. They do Mm -hmm. not like heavily imply them. 
whereas a bunch of of Villa players drafting out, taking out someone, is quite a clear indication that he's injured. Like that, that's a confirmation rather than a suggestion. Oh yeah, especially because it was three players. The first one of them all by a full day was the physio, and I was like, did he literally have Jack Willis's injury report on one tab and then his team on the other one? That was just like that's just so dodgy. But uh, it it is a bit of a shame because there's been in my opinion, a really fun side of having Premier League players involved with the the fancy Premier League scene. Um, obviously, just from like the, the funny anecdotal things, like players captaining themselves or players taking themselves out of their team just before they do really well. Um, Patrick Bamford, I had seen on Twitter, triple captained himself this week, which is quite amusing when he didn't score earlier and then did score uh, in the game that just happened uh, this evening. So that's sort of kind of funny. And also, we've had players getting even more involved. Um, Patrick van Arnholt, uh, runs his own mini league every season and uh, for the last few years he's had these really exciting fun bespoke prizes that you can get from winning his league uh, the winner meets him and gets presented an official trophy they get a match-worn shirt of his which has been signed by the entire palace squad so it's just little cool things like this that a promote the game that certainly you and i have been playing for years and years and it's always more fun if more people play and secondly it's just sort of nice to have almost a sense of connection, not just to the game because you see the players in it playing it, but also to the players themselves. Yeah, exactly. And I would I would love to see any sort of um, statistics that showed maybe that Patrick Bamford had become more selfish since captaining himself in his own team. Um, that would really crack me up. But yeah, I mean, another example is someone like Diogo Jota, who has recently finished first in the entire of the world in fantasy um in ultimate team fifa 21 for one of the weekend leagues and it's just stuff that you know they're they're in and around the the wider sphere of football and it's fun to see them participate in different ways so fully agree with you there yeah just fun to be obviously the average fan and the average footballer operate in very different spheres so when you have like a point of you know commonality it's, it's really really enjoyable um Incidentally, what was quite interesting about this was that maybe this was just Leicester being a little bit slow on the uptake, maybe Brendan Rodgers doesn't have Twitter, maybe they just weren't, you know, giving it too much thought, but it didn't really seem like Leicester benefited from the whole scandal. They still lined up with Ricardo Pereira and Timothy Castagna doubled up on the right-hand side, um, almost as if they were expecting a sort of tricky winger down the left side, so it didn't really seem like the benefit from this. I do think that moving forwards, if the same sort of things happen, we will see more managers react to it uh, in a timely fashion. But it's a lot of fuss being made about something that didn't even seem to be noticed at Leicester, weirdly. True. Um, But, you know, everyone's kind of weighing in and commenting. It's interesting to see Pep Guardiola's comments as well. Uh, Mm. You know, he said, and I quote, sometimes it happens. It's incredibly unethical and unprofessional, but you cannot control it. Villa have clearly turned around and said, well, yes, we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with both parts of his statement for different reasons there. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's a shame, but it, the, the main thing for me is I feel like surely these things can exist without being found out. I don't know how it would happen, the principle of exactly, but the principle of it surely is that players should be able to have anonymous teams. Yeah, probably the easiest way to do it is to not name your team after yourself. Like, you can choose what your name is when you make these um, the, the, these fancy football teams. So, you know... Well, so you're scrolling down and you see Patrick Bamford FC and you're like, well... <laughs> yeah, just, just come up with an alias for the course of the season and you can have like an alias named league um, and it, you know you can just get away with it. A lot of people have been coming up with these really convoluted, complicated like solutions to it or like this implication that it's terrible, but it just, just don't register under your real name and it should be fine. Um, exactly. I mean, there's there's one final point to just talk on. I mean, does do you think fantasy football should count as gambling? Uh, or, or betting, so sorry? I I don't think it should, but I think incidentally, I mean, we've talked in the past about how the gambling industry has its its meaty claws all over the Premier League uh, regulatory bodies. Um, I don't think it should count as gambling, but it is interesting to note how it can come into play with gambling. For example, knowing ahead of time that Jack Grealish isn't going to play against Leicester could inform a lot of bettors into betting one way or another, or not betting on some things they they might otherwise. So I can see if, you know, like Big Daddy Betfair starts to get a little bit annoyed, and then all these different betting companies start to see a, a correlation between this sort of leak happening and less money reaped on people making ill-informed bets, them going, right, okay, we've got to 
another sort of challenge the Premier League now and try and get them to put a stop to this. I think the only thing to counter that would be whether or not all of these clubs, as you say, so all of these companies, as you say, that have their claws in the Premier League, whether or not they're not already getting an inside track into team news and club information before fans and at times, you know, fans never do. Oh, oh, oh they a hundred percent absolutely are. I can tell you that for a fact because most of them have representatives at grounds, and the, like you can get the team. So the same reason that Fancy Premier League had a um, they've put the deadline now for squads to ninety minutes instead of sixty minutes because you can get the lineups early if you're actually at the ground and get a printed thing out. It happened all the time when I went to training ground games and things like that. Um, but that the concern won't be them not getting it; it'll just be them not having the advantage on the average punter, if that makes sense. Well, exactly, and is that ethical if? these people can have an, another advantage. Yeah, no, pro- probably not. But I, it, I think it's already the case. But they'll be upset if people have the same playing field as them. I, I, I mean, ultimately, that's sort of besides the point. That's a bit of a tangent. But yeah, no, I, I don't really think it, it, it is gambling. There was a poll um, posted, interestingly, to a, to a big uh, fancy Premier League community, polling over 18,000 players of the game, uh, asking whether they thought Premier League sh- players should play fancy Premier League. And the vast majority, around 69%, saw no problem with it. I agree. I see no problem with it, really. It's a bit of fun. I'm sure if any Premier League player actually did win the whole thing, which is the only time when you get these major prizes... Firstly, I think the main prize is getting to go to Premier League games. So I can't see Patrick <laughs> Van Aanholt being like, yeah, sorry, Roy, can't play this weekend. I'm going to go watch Manchester United. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a box at the Derby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and, and secondly, even if they won it, I'm, I'm very sure the first thing they do would for, like they'd choose to forfeit it to second place. Yeah, agreed. Um, um, so, so yeah, just an, an interesting story. Um, for the most part, just like a little fun bit of intrigue. It'll be interesting to see if it gets serious at all. Um, I think Villa have responded one way to it. It doesn't seem like it's been a big response across the league, but definitely now there will be a few more eagle-eyed officials at the um, both from the the clubs that do it and the clubs playing against them of what what their players are doing in the game. Exactly, and probably a few more eagle-eyed fans as well. Now that this kind of tactic and method is gaining traction. You know, stuff like Instagram stories, Facebook posts and stuff like that. We have such an unparalleled access to these players' lives. It's mm. it's little you know, surprise that this kind of stuff is happening now. Yeah, 100%. Uh, shall we move into guessing game? Uh, and I've got a, a bit of a doozy for you this week. Okay, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, my first clue is that this player played at three different Premier League clubs and only three. And all of them were London-based. Okay. So bit of a bit of a city guy. Um, I've next got a list of players that he played with for you. Excellent. And the players he played with were Carlo Cudicini, Jermaine Defoe, Danny Shittu, Damien Duff, and Michael Essien. Do you okay. got all those? Yeah. He hasn't played in the Premier League since 2014 but he played against a Premier League side last week he played against a Premier League side last week mm-hmm okay uh, and, and those are your three clues to kick off I've got a, a big bonus for you later on if you're stumped uh, but how are you feeling so far I'm feeling okay I think I've got an idea of the three clubs I just mm-hmm. need to try and match it to a player. I have a player in mind, but I'm not sure he played at one of those clubs. So okay. leave that with me and we'll see We'll see how we get on. Fantastic. Uh, next, we'll be looking at a little bit of a, a, a segment in a sense. It's something we do a little bit already, but it's, it's an idea you came with. We're, we're going to be punditing the pundits. Uh, and we're going to be taking a look at uh, an assertion that's been made by one of the pundits on Match of the Day or at the Games or something, uh, and, and sort of either challenge it and see if we agree with it or not, and uh, and where we where we stand in regards to it. Uh, and R- Rupert, what's the thing we're going to be addressing this week? Sure. So the main the main point is, you know, we're kind of going to break it down and, and look at the real statistics and meet behind these these claims that pundits often make. There's been a lot of of conversation around Liverpool in recent weeks and whether or not I know we've talked about it a lot mm. they are justified in that in that they're struggling due to injuries or whether or not they're making excuses for no reason so Jamie Carragher this week came out and said Liverpool need to stop going on about Virgil van Dijk's injury and 
I've heard I've heard kind of arguments on both sides of of the aisle. You know, some people definitely coming out and saying Liverpool have been hit unlike any other team in recent history, and any club would be struggling. And on the other mm. side, saying you know a lot of clubs are struggling with injuries, and Liverpool are no different. Yeah, I think it is interesting because certainly when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I think three senior centre-backs and up to five at this point, if you're including Fabinho and Henson with their their small knocks picked up over the last week, is really, really tough. Then again, these things do happen to a lot of clubs and Liverpool are starting to pick up some really historic records. Um, Obviously, the home wins in a row was the record that finally saw its end on their 69th game. So they had a 68 uh, wins in a row. They've now had four consecutive home losses in the league following that for the first time since 1923. Um, They also currently hold the status of suffering the biggest points drop by any reigning champion at this stage of a campaign in English top flight history. Uh, Although, of course, this is partly because of their own record high finish uh, for them second I think in in Premier League history um, the season prior Uh, and I think you know part of this is because it's a very weird season and there's a lot going on but I do think that some of the stuff happening at Liverpool has to go beyond the injury crisis Um, and I do agree broadly with Jamie Carragher's verdict that I think Firstly, Liverpool need to stop going on about Virgil van Dijk being missing so much because it doesn't really add anything to their, you know, to their post-match analysis. And secondly, something that Genie Wijnaldum picked up on as well when he heard this analysis from Carragher is just that the longer they dwell on this, the more they sort of fail to move on and build on their other issues. Yeah, agreed. But I think, obviously, just just to to frame it in terms of how bad statistically their injury crisis has been, um, they've been missing at least five senior players for the last 19 matches in a row. And over the course of this season, they've been missing an average of 5.8 players per game as a whole. Um, Compared to last season, where they were missing two and a half players on average per game for the whole season. And I think partly this is because they had such a, a lucky run with a lack of injuries last season. And also it, it's it's much the same as the um, the home leagues, the home wins and home losses record and also the big points drop. These are just huge juxtapositions. Um, but I think centre-backs particularly are important. And so you can look at bodies out and that's sort of one thing that Liverpool are really, really suffering from. But I think because they've been so centralised in that one area, it's very difficult, particularly because centre-backs, I think as we've discussed, are one of the most, if not the most important part of the squad. Um, Looking at some examples, just in the Premier League very, very, very recently, obviously City, uh, this form, uh, their their form this year, has been really closely linked to the purchase of Ruben Diaz. Liverpool themselves look like a very different team when they got in Van Dijk and also Alisson. Uh, And we talked about the downfall of United a few episodes ago. uh, And one of the biggest issues they had was losing Ferdinand and Vidic or how Spurs have gone from reaching the Champions League final to now being a side in real distress, it's because they've lost that partnership of Vertonghen and Alderweireld. Um, and, and definitely that trio of two centre-backs plus the keeper can really make a big difference. So, so I do think, uh, what I think is important to say is that this isn't to diminish the problem that missing Van Dijk is, because that obviously is a massive, massive problem. But I do also think that it's maybe being a little bit overstated as a problem. I mean, for starters, Virgil van Dijk was playing early this season when they lost 7-2 to Aston Villa. Very true, yeah. And and that can't be understated in, in the state of affairs at Liverpool. So I fully agree with that. Uh, the, the other thing I think is really interesting to look at is um, people are sort of suggesting that this is just bad luck and I think Jurgen Klopp has also been doing this and Wijnaldum as I mentioned came out and sort of talked about how it was very bad luck um and, and I just want to kind of take a little bit of a look at that as as a, as a claim is it bad luck from from Liverpool or is it maybe self-inflicted um there have been a lot of similarities I don't know how many of our listeners are very familiar with uh Klopp's Dortmund or Klopp's Mainz but Liverpool have the worst injury record in the league over the five years that Klopp has been here. And I don't think that's coincidental. Partly, that is going to be an average that is slightly skewed by their really, really unlucky injury problems this season. But I think it's also because they have this system that Jurgen Klopp likes to do at all of his clubs. Basically, Jurgen Klopp likes a couple of things that have defined his managerial style. He likes to play high-intensity football, really likes his team to gag and press, pressing high up the pitch, and he likes working with a small squad. He always comes out and he says, I don't like working with a large squad. You can't effectively manage a squad of more than 23 players. If you have a small squad, you can get everyone together and uh, you know get, get the most out of them, get that camaraderie going, get that trust. 
obviously these things have a bit of a synergy. This small squad trusts, it like clearly works. The core that he has at that team has been exceptional for the last three years. And, and they have been really, really dangerous to play against with that intensity and that pressing high up the pitch. But at the same time, after a certain period of time, they start to have a bit of a negative synergy. High intensity football plus small squad size is going to inevitably lead to injury and even beyond injury, burnout. Um, and I think something else that we've seen with Liverpool is obviously the injury crisis of, of the centre-backs, but we've also seen the team in general just burning out and not looking as effective. Players like uh, Alexander-Arnold, for example, who looked amazing last season, don't look the same. Sadio Mane, for me, was arguably their best player last season and has just gone missing this year. Um, you know, Andy Robertson has been pretty good for them, but it's kind of difficult for him to, to be as impactful without that sort of com- combination down the left. Yeah, definitely. And and these are players that, while they have had injuries here and there, they've by no means missed half the season at all. I mean, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold has, has 23 appearances from 25 game weeks. Uh, and similarly, Sadio Mane has played 22 games so far this season in the mm. Premier League. So it's not like, you know, they they have been missed in the sense that they haven't been available. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. So, so it goes beyond injury. Obviously, you've got the players who are not there physically because they're in the medical room. You've also got the players who who aren't there in a sort of more um, metaphorical sense. Sadio Mane that we saw last season has not been there this season. Um, and I think you can learn a lot about this Liverpool side, about how Klopp's things went with, with Mines and Dawn beforehand. Um, at both of the clubs he managed before Liverpool, he had a very, very similar career up to this point. Really, really promising start with both clubs respectively. Um, and then following the promising start, which is what we saw with Liverpool, sort of a little bit of a comeback to goodness. Really, really, really good. So obviously for Mines, he got them promoted into the Bundesliga. They finished uh, in the top 11 in their first season uh, and spent most of their time in the top half of the table. Uh, and they had a really, really good period. Similarly, Dortmund uh, obviously won the Bundesliga and, and got to the Champions League final. Looked really, really impressive. One of the best teams in Europe for a while. And then the third stage, which is where we are looking like we might be with Liverpool now. Um, Mines then got relegated from the Bundesliga and went back to the Bundesliga too. Dortmund were flirting with relegation for a few periods in his last season, um, although they eventually finished seventh, just spent a long time in that last season not having a great time. And and now Liverpool are, are doing the same. So is this just maybe the price that you pay in a Jurgen Klopp team? Um, and, and I think the answer is yes. Well, it's, it's an interesting point because I definitely agree with you about the high intensity that he demands of his players and you know the the statistics that come out of, in terms of distance run from their midfields especially is a incredibly impressive and b does not seem sustainable. Um, hmm. So I was also interested in your point about the fact that he keeps a close knit squad because definitely my impression of last season was that he had pretty much exactly the same starting eleven from start to finish. So I did some digging around. I've done some primary research of myself, and I took a look at three teams who retained the title in the Premier League in the last few years. The last three being City 2017-2018, because mm-hmm. they won the league after. Manchester United in 2007-2008, because they won um, 2008-9 as well. And Manchester United 06-07. And I then compared that to three teams who have not won the league afterwards and in fact had quite a difficult time the most recent three being Chelsea 2014-15 Leicester City 2015-2016 and Chelsea 2016-2017 and I wanted to see what the average appearances was for the top 11 players in terms of appearances and I'm liking this quite interesting thing comes out which is that the teams that retained the title the season before averaged of their top 11 players only 28 appearances. Whereas okay. the teams that failed to retain their title averaged 32.9. So a, a significant, significant amount more, like five games more on average per player is not a small amount. Um, mm. So Liverpool, interestingly, fall almost exactly in the middle at 30.8 for last season. So while they were reliant on a couple of their key players, they did also rotate quite effectively in midfield, um, drawing on you know Henderson, Cater, uh, Wijnaldum, Fabinho as a, as four players who played in three positions, mm-hmm. and they also had a couple of of substitutions in and out at times up top. 
So it, it's not that they are they had an unprecedented level of expectation for these players' fitness levels, but they do, on average, play more than teams in the past have when they've been able to to keep up their form. Yeah, and I think that contributes to to a number of issues that we're now seeing with them. Obviously, the first and most obvious is the injury and the burnout, but the second is the sort of what looks to me like a bit of an inability to to move on the fly. A lot of Liverpool fans have been raising the point that they've played 18 different centre-back combinations this season so far, and you can tell because they look very, very uncomfortable, all these centre-backs with each other. Obviously, with the examples of Henderson and Fabinho, they're not actually centre-backs, so that kind of makes sense. But even seeing things like, you know, Joel Matip and Joe Gomez, who should perfectly fit together even when Van Dijk's out, obviously not perform at the same level, but it should be a, a bit more plain sailing than it's certainly certainly has been, um, you can tell that there's just not as much comfort when the fuller level isn't there. And it all came together perfectly last season and the season before where Liverpool have looked like one of the best teams in the world. But maybe there's a little bit of weakness in having a squad that crumbles so drastically under the injury of one key player. Um, And obviously they have had more injuries than that. But I think people have had a tendency to look at where Liverpool are now with all of these injuries that have stacked up and kind of ignore that this has been a decline going on even beyond Virgil van Dijk, even before rather um, Virgil van Dijk's injury. I think we looked last season, uh, even after Project Restart, that they were maybe looking a little bit subdued and part of that was attributed to the fact that they maybe did have it in the bag a bit and didn't have that that motivation and certainly after they won it, they, they lost some games that we wouldn't have expected them to back in February of that same year. But um, I think if you look at it from a real wide perspective, this decline has been happening for a while. And I think ultimately, if you just drive people as hard as they have been driven by Klopp for this long, this will happen. Um, And incidentally, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if you ask any Liverpool fan alive if they would trade the current situation that they've had over the last three years for something where they've, they're still consistent, they would say, God, no, give us the injury crisis, but also the Premier League and the Champions League. Um, yeah, but I think the highs is, and the lows, for sure. This is just the price you pay, I think, for a Jurgen Klopp performance. What, what's interesting now to me is to see what the next step is, because with both Mainz and Dortmund, pretty swiftly after things started to go poorly, he left. Mines, he remained for one more season uh, and attempted to get promoted with them, but after he couldn't, he left. Uh, And in the dormant season where they were sort of in the relegation zone, he announced uh, as early as, I think it was March or April, that he he came out and just said, listen, I I love this team too much to see it run by the wrong person, and at the moment I'm the wrong person to run it. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens now with Liverpool, because I don't think it would be a very popular decision to give him his P45. Um... And I also don't think it would necessarily be the right one either, but we just don't know what's going to happen next. Are they now going to sort of replenish their stock or is this sort of, as we've seen, the problem with an injury crisis is that when you have five centre-backs in a squad and one of them gets injured, all of a sudden your remaining four all have to take on an extra playing burden and then one of them gets injured because of the extra burden. So now three players have to take on the burden and then one of them gets injured, so two are taking on the burden and then one of them... So it's just a vicious circle. So is it going to come to a natural end or are things going to keep getting worse and worse and worse until they have either the lack of expectation that lets them reset or Klopp leaves? Well, time will tell, but it's definitely an interesting development and interesting as well to compare their success this season to someone like Man City, who have had injuries galore throughout. Kevin De Bruyne's mm. been out. Sergio Aguero's been out. They're back four, to contrast. They've had, um, you know, I think Ben Mendy's been injured. Uh, they've, they've played Cancelo on the on left back. They've played him at right back. They've brought in Zinchenko. They have John Stones, Ruben Diaz. Um, and then on top of that, they have players like Nathan Ake that they bought. They have Americ Laporte, that can do, come in and do a job up top. They've done a whole bunch of tactical uh, flips. They, you know, they've completely transformed Ilkay Gundogan into apparently a twenty-goal a season player. They brought in Bernardo Silva and played as a false nine. They put Bernardo uh, Ferran Torres up front. They brought in Phil Foden. Um, you know, they've tried Sterling up front. It. They're doing everything they possibly can, and they found formulas. So, I feel like it's. I want to contrast that with, as you mentioned, the 18 different centre-back pairings that they've tried, which is a ridiculous statistic. Like, let's not take that out of context. In context or out of context, that is a ludicrous statistic. But mm. it has it has been the same for City. They've had to make drastic changes, but they're still getting away with it. They're still pulling it off 
they're still continuing great form. Leicester City are another great example. They've had Siunchu injured. They've had Pereira injured. They have Tendi Castagna injured. They've had James Justin injured. Madison's been out for a bit. Um, Jamie Vardy's been out for a bit. Mendy's been injured. He's so important to them. Um, and throughout, they have managed to maintain their form and maintain their consistency. So it, it's not like Liverpool are alone in this. And I feel like, yes, potentially the lack of preseason hit them harder than other clubs, just because, as you mentioned, Klopp does push his players harder than other managers. But I think, as you mentioned, the, the over-reliance on Virgil van Dijk is a serious problem for them. And, you know, the fact that, as you mentioned as well, they are a group of players that are used to playing together. And when that balance is disrupted, they fall apart. I think um, the other part that we haven't mentioned yet this week, but we've mentioned a lot in the past, is just their complete failure to bring in new players. They had a great opportunity in January to pick up new signings and they just completely failed to. Looking at the Everton loss for them, um, you know, they they made... like Nathaniel Phillips was jogging for Dominic Calvert-Lewin's penalty decision and Ruben Kazan was wildly out of position when um, he allowed Richarlison through on goal (laughs) as a one-on-one. Do you mean Ozan Kabak? I do mean Ozan Kabak. I said Ruben Kazan, didn't I? I, exa- I de- <laughs> Ozan Kabak, yeah. Um, this is not good players. I mean, Nathaniel Phillips, I'm willing to give some credit to just because he's been given a much bigger role than I'm sure he was expecting at the beginning of the season. And he has come in and played admirably for a, a player of his experience level and age. But you can't ask him to do what they're asking him to do. You needed to bring in someone that could come in and provide stability, and they just have completely failed to do so. Or, or, or and I think this is just an extension of the, of the point you were making there, and also the one I was making a little bit earlier, or, or if you see someone like Nathaniel Phillips as a, as the first port of call as a backup when you know two of your centre-backs are injured and he's your sort of fourth choice, blood him occasionally. Why is it the first time he's being seen? Or if not him, you know, why are some of these other players not coming in? We've seen so many young players at other clubs, obviously notably Chelsea last season, but for example at Arsenal you see Bakayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe or Man City, we've seen Phil Foden and Eric Garcia or, or Manchester United, you see Mason Greenwood coming in. All these players who have come in and varying levels of success but most of them haven't looked so wide-eyed and like oh my god I'm nowhere near ready for this level yet and I think part of that is because they've had little cameos here and there in the Carabao Cup and maybe 15 minutes to the end of a game here and Liverpool have stuck to this one formula which has worked absolute wonders but as a result it means when the the pieces are whipped away from them you know they are suffering so much more and I think that for me is why I probably disagree with the the widely published sentiment at the moment that any team would suffer as much as Liverpool if they had this injury crisis I think Liverpool have got really unlucky with this injury crisis I do also think that part of it has been self-inflicted and I do also think that the way they've built themselves as a side has left them far more susceptible to an injury crisis than most teams yeah I think that's a really good conclusion uh, to that, I think there's one more thing that I'd love to to pass you away, and it's maybe a slightly more controversial uh, line of questioning, but we'll mm-hmm. we'll see what you make of it. Um, would you say that by choosing to trust a smaller selection of players and by you know the the team evolving as a unit, that their their play is more form based, that that you know they rely more on form than they do on out and out quality. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I, I would say. And I would say it's important to mark the difference between team form and individual form. I think we also slightly talked about how um, the, the players, because they all came in, a lot of them at the same time, and they were roughly the same age in that mid-20s bracket, they all sort of became, instead of having an individual identity, just like a team, which in a sense is exactly what you want from a, a team over a league campaign. But also now we've seen the problem with when one piece gets pulled out, Um or one or two or have many and it just all, all falls to bits I do think it is very form based I think they've just happened to be in very good form for a long time and I do think there are players there who have just buckets of individual quality uh, like for example Sadio Mane who just happens to be in bad form uh, but yeah no, I, I would agree it's a, it's a form driven model and that's why we're seeing a lack of form hit them so hard now I feel like it's something that is going to prove itself in the coming months and, and the coming year or two but I definitely feel like any sort of meteoric rise in performance 
is at least in part unsustainable. And I'm not surprised that we are seeing a drop off by these players. No, 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 me, me neither. Uh, shall we move into useless trivia before going into our next couple of segments? Uh, and I have got uh, a good one for you. Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace beat Graham, Pro- Graham Potter's Brighton on Monday, uh, which has reinforced Roy's status as the only Swedish Cup winning manager to ever win a Premier League game against another Swedish Cup winning manager. Um, I say reinforced and not established because not only has he beaten Graham Potter's Seagulls twice, but also in 2007-08, Sven-Goran Eriksson's Manchester City when Roy was managing Fulham. Wow. A three-time defender of the title. There you go. Of the, Sw- of the Swedish Cup. <laughs> that is a fun fun statistic indeed. Uh, my statistic is, is based on Manchester United this week. Uh, so uh, there are four players who have scored Premier League hat-tricks against Manchester United who are, uh, I think we've talked about already on the show once before, David Bentley, Dirk Count, Romelu Lukaku and Samuel Eto'o. What's interesting is that in the combined 29 other league appearances that each of those players have played against Manchester United, not one of them has scored a single other goal against them apart from their hat-trick. That's, ooh, that's really interesting. Let's just woke up on that day and had, uh, woke up on the right side of the bed. It's either a complete anomaly or Manchester United are just furiously proud creatures and will defend it whatever they can against these players who have embarrassed them in the past. Very possibly. Um, looking at another quick fun segment before we look at uh, our, our last issue of the day, um, we had the announcement a couple of days ago that fans might be allowed back to the final games of the season, uh, which is something I'm really excited about. I think in the very first episode of the podcast, we talked about how football was going to be without the fans, and definitely we've seen a huge change in how football's consumed, in how teams themselves have played without fans, uh, and definitely it seems to me that some have been affected more than others, but all teams have been affected. Um, I thought it was interesting to talk about it a, a little bit and what the effect of fans at the end of the season could be, not least because at the moment City look likely to be the ones winning the Premier League so it's their fans that would likely benefit the most of getting to see their team lift the trophy sure. um, do, you, do you think they'll finally fill the Etihad? <laughs> Only time will tell I think that if they were ever going to fill it it's surely now that being said <laughs> it's probably going to come at a time when you know we're still not fully in the swing of tourism so you know could go either way <laughs> Um, I think it'll be really interesting as well, just in, in terms of the whole teams playing differently. That There's a narrative that's been tossed around. It's one that I wholeheartedly agree with, that um, some teams have played a lot differently with fans than others. I think some have sort of... Everyone's obviously played differently because of the circumstances and the schedule being very packed and et cetera, et cetera. I think you can visibly tell that some teams have missed out on fans more than others. Um, certainly ones that have a bit more of a fortress going with their fans at their back. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see if that theory is sort of boosted by an immediate sort of visible difference when fans go back. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's just going to have a completely unique effect on every single club, I think. There are going to be some that are massively boosted by it and some that you know have, have kind of managed to overcome what shortcomings they've had from not having fans and, and have been able mm. to, to move past it. So, yeah, it, it could well affect the, the end end day of the season in a really interesting way especially for the clubs that are at the bottom of the table it'll be interesting to see if there are any clubs that have actually done better without fans if we see like because man united have like really abusive fans if they suddenly lose the form they've been enjoying recently <laughs> when the fans are back in the ground <laughs> to be fair i mean if real madrid were popping off I, w- I would say they would be like high on my list of of clubs that might well struggle when uh, when the fans are let back into the stadium because they in my mind uh, like set the benchmark for for toxicity um <laughs> but yeah i mean it could well be i i can't think of any real premier league teams that that i think of as having like negative fans for their own team during play yeah yeah, every club has pockets. I don't think any fan base has anything as resoundingly negative as the example, as you said, of Real Madrid, who, like, as, as a fan base, will come together to just bully Gareth Bale. Well, it's definitely going to... The other thing is, it's going to add so much pressure on fans. Like, they're going to have to really, like, be working their lungs, practising up until uh, the, the big day, because if their club needs a win, they're probably going to feel even more a sense of responsibility for their potential to influence it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we could see forward, sober yeah. crowds for the first time. 
Oh, Jesus. Uh, definitely something to look forward to. Um, the only hope, obviously, is that football will continue to be you know, as accessible as it has been this last year. I think the one good thing, the one positive we've got from last year has been massive improvements to the viewing experience outside of the physical visit. Um, obviously, personally, I've, I'm very lucky, and I know you are as well, to be able to go to a lot of games, but that's just not a reality for everyone, whether it's a geographical thing or, or just a time-based thing that you can't make it to the games. Um, I think it's been great that we've had such an improvement of the accessibility of football games to people who can't actually go. I hope, for example, that the 3pm blackout just isn't brought back, because that's just nonsense uh, that, that kind of helps no one, and I also don't believe it increases attendance to live games. So, yeah, the, the one thing I would hope is that when fans are back, the, um, the kindness shown to fans from home is continued yeah i mean i i don't want to shoot you in the foot there but i'm quite confident that that will go immediately out the window <laughs> i'm sure it will as well like i'm, I'm oh. really quite quite confident that uh you know i mean we see it again and again like clubs don't really care about their fans as much as they should and the premier league doesn't care about its supporters nearly as much as it should and um, it's it's sad but i'm i'm pretty sure that the 3 p.m. blackout will immediately be reinstated. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I'll believe until it happens, though. Um, let's go on to our last topic of the day. Um, looking at Jose Mourinho uh, and and how things are going for him. Obviously, he came out uh, earlier this week uh, after the poor run of form that Tottenham have had that we alluded to last week and has only continued over the weekend. Uh, and he insisted that the methods that he and his coaching staff use are second to nobody in the world. What's especially interesting about this story is we've since had a really informative article published by the Athletics' Jack Pitt Brook this week um, that cited a lot of different members of the squad, squad insiders, people close to the squad, all that sort of thing that gave us some information that was really, really... Um, it gave us a lot of information that we otherwise normally wouldn't have our hands on. Um, so, so I thought it would be interesting to talk about that. Just to frame it again, though, before uh, we get into it, looking at the current form of Tottenham, under Mourinho, Spurs have the lowest win percentage of any manager since Juan de Ramos. Uh, they've got three points from their last six league games, a 3-1 loss to Liverpool, 1-0 loss to Brighton, 1-0 loss to Chelsea, 2-0 win over West Brom, 3-0 loss to Man City, and 2-1 loss to West Ham. And they've also been knocked out of the FA Cup by Everton in that time frame in a 5-4 defeat. Uh, in total, in their last 12 league games, they've only managed to pick up 12 points. So things aren't going very well for Spurs at the moment. They they certainly aren't. And things aren't going well for Mourinho either in terms of the, the wider... Uh, performance of his teams throughout his career. Um, another interesting stat is that uh, after 50 league matches in charge of Spurs, he has the lowest total of any managerial stint and by quite a long way. Um, his career high was at Porto, where he had 124 points after 50 games. And then Spurs are at 81, um, which is, you know, 50% less. Um Sorry, 30, 30% less. So it's significant. And what's also interesting is that these numbers have been dwindling ever since Real Madrid. So at Chelsea, mm -hmm. it was 114. Then at Man United, where I gen I kind of was starting to feel like he could well be past it. He only got 95 points from his first 50 games. Now down to 81. So it's it it's not encouraging. Yeah, and I think there has been a marked decline, obviously just from a very, um, you know, factual level of looking at the things that he's won. Every other club that he's managed at, he's won at least the league title there, and then he went to Manchester United and didn't win the league title there, but at least he won the Europa League, and now he's gone to Spurs and hasn't won anything and doesn't look like he'll be winning anything anytime soon. Um, and I just think... It, there are a couple of angles to look at this at, and I just want to start with some of the things that have been said about members of his squad, because I think it's really interesting to look at the tactical side of it. Um, several of the Spurs players in this article um, that have come out from under Pochettino have said they're increasingly unhappy with the training sessions because they're too defensive, too focused on the opposition, and not as intensive as they'd grown used to. Uh, one source said that everything has changed, even the training is so defensively minded, there's no plan to move the ball forward. The plan is to defend, boot the ball up to Harry and Son, and that's it. Um, 
Apparently even the atmosphere has got really negative. Players remarked that as they get close to every game, the atmosphere is increasingly based on fears of what might go wrong. And this just sounds like such a departure from the Mourinho teams we're used to. Obviously, there's a little bit of familiarity in the defensive insistence, but old good Mourinho teams could score goals as well. And the thing that really stuck out to me was this sort of uncertainty and fear in the light, in the lead up to a game. So you got the sense with, you know, certainly like that Mourinho-Chelsea team, for example, they were never in doubt that they were going to win a game, even if they didn't end up coming out of that game with, with all three points you could kind of tell even in the tunnel that they were 100% convinced they were going to win um so so the fact that now he's managing a side that is very uncertain is a massive departure from what we've grown used to definitely and and this loss of mentality is so important to him because you know some of his most incredible statistics in terms of you know the fact that Chelsea didn't lose a home game in in the whole time he was in charge for example uh mm-hmm. that's at least partly or a large part I would argue mentality driven and Mm. probably the most worrying statistic that I've seen this week is that in the loss against West Ham it was the first time a Jose Mourinho side in the entire of his career has conceded in both the opening five minutes of the first half and of the second half and that to me is an indication of mentality and of influence over the dressing room and that that to me I just think it's gone I think it's over for him at Tottenham and definitely there is a sense that he has no new ideas from the outside looking in it's really surprising as well the more you learn about Jose Mourinho the more you look into him to hear these things being said by people in in the Spurs dressing room and, and around the club because everyone that you listen to that has been managed by him will say he was so intense his research was second to none he he had a passion that we just was infectious and all of these this stuff and it's just completely lacking by the sounds of it to to slightly take things in a different direction and this isn't necessarily an an, an absolution of Mourinho and it isn't necessarily a condemnation of him but do you think that maybe people are getting a little bit too clever with their analysis of this and actually does this come as that much of a surprise that Mourinho has you know at long last started managing a club that doesn't have bottomless resources and the magic has ended I mean certainly for us we're of the age that growing up every single weekend in the playground when Chelsea had beaten someone's team the argument between the Chelsea fan and Arsenal or United or Liverpool fan was oh if he managed a club that didn't have hundreds and hundreds of minutes spent he wouldn't win stuff um you know obviously Chelsea were the obvious example where he did that where he was able to bring in players like Didier Dropa for, for 24 million and Czech and Robin and Cavallo in his, in his first ever summer um, and obviously that's 24 million in, in 2004's currency so way more than that is now sure. um, he was the first manager ever to accumulate over one billion pounds spent on transfers he you know even when he wasn't spending the money himself although he often did have um very very inflated windows he often came into clubs that had really really good outlays like for example when he joined Real Madrid the season before they just bought Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo Kaká Karim Benzema and Xabi Alonso all in the same window um when you compare that to Spurs who spent no money on senior players the season before Mourinho joined and where the largest transfer to date under him has been Sergio Regalon for 25 million pounds is it that much of a shock that he's not going out there and challenging for the title and not winning the the Champions League? Or is it just people being a bit, you know, a, a little bit too clever to sort of look at the obvious thing here and go, well, yeah, no wonder he didn't set as much of a good lap time in the in the Kia uh, in the Kia seat as he did in the Ferrari. I think I would think of it in a different way. I don't think of it as him just always having been a fraud and always having been needing to spend big on players i in my mind the Jose Mourinho trajectory is very much he burned his path to the top and he he achieved great success at porto the, the point i was making there wasn't necessarily to say that he's a fraud who only wins with money but just that with less resources have come less results is that so much of a surprise yeah definitely so i, I actually would argue that i think I think it's a, what I was going to say is it's a different pattern in my mind. I think that Mm -hmm. he had a lot of ambition, a lot of drive and a lot of passion. And he instilled that into his teams earlier in his career. And as he rose to the top through Porto, through Chelsea, and I would also say through Inter Milan and getting to Real Madrid, which a lot of people considered to be kind of almost the peak of anyone's career playing there or managing there. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, his, the passion was there and you could really clearly see it. I think that since then, there's been a significant drop-off. You know, while his Chelsea team of 2014-15 did win, 
the league. I think that they didn't have, and, and they had they had a really good year. It wasn't a massively contested league, and it dropped off pretty quickly afterwards. Manchester United, I never really felt got like they got going under him. But again, we've talked about the trouble that Manchester United have had in the last ten years since Ferguson left, and and now Spurs. I, I just feel like his star is dwindling in the sense that he doesn't have any new approaches to football and he's lost that real that spark, that inner fire that he once had that rode him through all of these things and that created these statistics like, you know, he, his teams never lose at home. Um, so I, I, I would say it goes further than just he's inherited a club that, that don't spend. That being said, mm-hmm. I do think that Spurs taking up that job has been incredibly difficult because... He picked it up at a time when, you know, a lot of people were pretty shocked at the sacking of Mauricio Pochettino. He was so firmly embedded in that club and he he nurtured a lot of those key players to the point where a lot of a lot of them were very sad to see him go and disappointed. I think it was and hard to start are, with. Still are as well. He also um came in it was was it December twenty nineteen? Three November, months yeah, I think. Three months later, the coronavirus pandemic hits. So he, you know, he's been battling against external forces as well. I think that if you look at the typical Jose Mourinho blueprint for for clubs, the way that he has this kind of typical three-season process, which is the first season he tends to kind of build and he'll maybe ostracize a player that's key or was key. He will choose a couple of young players to nurture and he'll really grow momentum second season They'll blast off, win the title. Third season, his players are burnt out and not willing to mm. fight for him anymore. And so he, he has to leave because results don't go his way anymore. And I, I think that he's been unable to build anything at Spurs because of external factors. He didn't get a preseason. He came in halfway through the year. There have been no fans. It's been it, happening during a pandemic. And... I think he inherited a squad that that weren't ready to like him. So I yeah. I think he's had everything against him. I'm not surprised by it, but I do think that. Yeah, I, I do think so, and I think alongside obviously the you know lack of financial backing and, and the slow decline, I think we have seen that Mourinho has just maybe maybe he's just just got a little bit older the game has passed him by a bit and, and it's something that we see a lot of the time with older managers it was ironically frequently a favorite taunt of Mourinho's to level his old nemesis Arsene Wenger um because i think you know when he came into the premier league in 2004 or 5 with Chelsea, obviously, yeah, he had that big influx of cash for his first window, but he also revolutionised the tactical understanding of the game um, with his sort of like specific application of different con- different playing concepts, everything being very specific, focus on everything being done with the ball. And the problem is that might have been revolutionary in 2004. It's not really revolutionary now. And he's instead being overtaken by managers who are building upon what he did with new ideas of their own. Um I think he is someone who still probably mutters to himself in his sleep that he's the special one. So he is kind of a bit of an old dog who refuses to learn new tricks. And this is coming back to bite him a little bit. Fully agree. And yeah, when I say he has no new ideas, I absolutely am talking about things like that. He has just completely been unable to move with the times. And I think his ego is probably at least a, a small part of that. Yeah, because you do see some older managers that are able to sort of move with the times. Ancelotti is an example I always think of, who's been around for for, for probably just as long as Mourinho. But you can see there are very obvious tactical differences between the way that he sets up, for example, Bayern Munich and Everton, as there ought to be. But it feels to me sometimes like Mourinho is trying to set up this Tottenham side in the same way that he might have set up his Real Madrid side, which is obviously never going to work. Yeah, I mean, even someone like Pep Guardiola, I think that he's had to show his tactical flexibility as we just talked about this season. I think you can see, you know, Kevin De Bruyne's out. So he brings back Bernardo Silva into midfield to help with the creativity. And he transforms Gundogan into more of a a number eight who will arrive in the box at the right time and finish chances. So, yeah, I think you can look across the spectrum. You know, we could see this coming. And see examples of, of people who have continued to improve and grow I think that a notable example is probably his nemesis that you already mentioned Arsene Wenger I think he's someone who failed to move with the times which is why he eventually got left behind 
There's something almost poetic about that, isn't there? That that Mourinho is sort of <laughs> now now having the same fate as as uh, his, his old nemesis. There, I know what you mean. There's something. Um, yeah, it, a, it feels a right. Poetry. It feels right, the doesn't game. it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Mourinho and and Wenger turn out to be good friends in the end, um, just through so much shared experience and and also you know mutual appreciation for for what they had and and how it went away from them. But Mourinho, I think, is done at Spurs. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it'll take a lot for him to turn things around. Obviously, there have already been rumours that they're lining up his replacement, um, and, and I just don't see him getting much more out of those players. If they now rescue things and have a, a decent finish to the season, it's going to be because Harry Kane and Heung-Min Son play their socks off independently of Mourinho. Um, I, I just don't see him being the force that turns things around there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, there are players as well that have the potential to have a big impact. Like we talked about the influence of Deli Ali in that dressing room. I think if he suddenly finds a great vein of form, that could be pivotal. I think if Gareth Bale suddenly finds a rich vein of form, that could also be pivotal. The other thing, just to drop into the mix as something to be aware of, is that there are rumours that he does not have a break clause in his contract, Mourinho. So he is contracted at the club until 2023. And let's just say that Daniel Levy is not well known for his uh, you know, willingness to, to part with cash. Not had the best of times. And given that Spurs are currently the club most in debt in the world, albeit due to their stadium purchase, I, I don't see them very rushing to buy his contract. So yeah, I mean, it could be that they're kind of stuck with each other for a little while. I mean... I can't think of many examples of managers choosing to stand down. If anyone were to do it, it could be Mourinho. He's always been a bit of a trailblazer and a proud man. But, you know, we we could well see them continue to limp on for a little while and slowly peter out. Yeah, I, th- I think we, re- we really could see the end. Um, and I'm sure Mauricio Pochettino probably isn't losing too much sleep since he's doing doing the business over at PSG at the moment. But there might be a part of him that's like, I've put in all this work. I, I built this nice sandcastle and now I have to watch this guy kick it down bit by bit every week. See, what I like about that analogy is that I I believe that Jose Mourinho would kick down a sandcastle if he saw one. That's <laughs> do I, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think mean, he'd check surely... to see if the kid was around first, though. Potentially, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so surely... like he wouldn't kick it unless the kid was there. <laughs> we'll just wait until he's come back from, from his loo break. <laughs> hey, kid. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure as a manager, you always lament missed opportunities. And definitely the, the sense was that Pochettino wasn't done with Spurs. Spurs were done with Pochettino. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he'll be a little sad and regretful at, at what he could have built because he was building something. Um, yeah. But... For sure. You know, that's that's the decisions that the club has made, not necessarily the right ones. I definitely didn't agree with the sacking of Pochettino at the time. I, I also didn't agree with the signing of Mourinho. I think the writing has been on the wall for him as a manager for a long time. Yeah, a, a, a good point and probably a good place to wrap it up so we can get into guessing game. Um, I will read out the three clues again, then let me know if you've got an idea. Um the first clue being this player played at three different Premier League clubs, all of them London-based. He's played with Carlo Cudicini, Jermaine Defoe, Danny Shittu, Damien Duff, and Michael Essien. He hasn't played in the Premier League since 2014, but he played against a Premier League side last week. Rupert, do you have any guesses? You, you, obviously, you get a guess now. If you're stumped, you get a clue, uh, and, and then you have your second guess if you need it. Yeah, I, I do have a guess. There's only one player that I can think of that played, well, I think, at three different um, high-profile London clubs. I think mm-hmm. the clubs that this player played at were Chelsea, Arsenal, and Tottenham. There mm-hmm. weren't any Arsenal players that I can remember in that list. But I think that might have been a little bit of a misnomer from you. I think you're, you're playing Fred with Harry. Okay. Uh I think it's William Gallas. Good guess, good guess. I'm afraid it's incorrect. Oh, gosh. It's not William Gellis. Um, well, okay, so the other thing, I was trying to remember, think of Danny Shittu, and the only club that I remember him playing at was Watford. Uh, I guess that maybe there was a chance he'd played at um, Spurs, but 
If not, then it's someone who definitely played at Chelsea. I don't think any those players came together for any other team. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he played at Tottenham for Jermaine Defoe. Uh, would, would you like your bonus clue? Yeah, I'll take a bonus clue. Thanks. His first name is an anagram of the word deal, D-E-A-L. As in the art of the... Deal. Yep. Elder Costa. <laughs> um... <laughs> Elder Costa. <laughs> uh, his first name was an anagram of the word deal. Oh, this yep. is such a good clue, and it's not one that later um, Alda. I'm I'm drawing a blank. I'm, I think it's going to have to be a, a forfeit from me. Um, later, a forfeit from you. Okay, well, um, to our listeners, obviously, if you need to think it out, give it a pause. I'll, I'll reveal it now. Are you, you sure you're ready to, to forfeit, Roops? I think I am bested. I, I, okay, I'll reveal it now. I have been quite mean with these clues. Um, this player, the three Premier League London clubs that he played at were not, in fact, uh, Arsenal, Chelsea and Spurs. They were Spurs, QPR and Fulham. He did play with Carlo Cudicini, although it's Spurs and not Chelsea. He no, it's not not a fan of He played with Jermaine Defert Spurs, you're correct. He played with Danny Sietu, not at Watford or Millwall, as I thought you might go for, but QPR as well. He played with Damien Duff yeah. at Fulham and not Chelsea. And he played with Michael Essien, not at Chelsea, but at AC Milan. And he played in the Premier League haven't played in the Premier League since 2014. He played against Arsenal last week for Benfica. The player in question is a Delta Rapt. A Delta Rapt. Wow. What? Do you know why I'm disappointed about that? Is that <laughs> I've actually been looking at a Delta Rapt recently, just his resurgence this year, or in the last few years actually, as a a combative out and out midfielder. Yeah, uh, a real re- reimagining of himself. Yeah. So for anyone who who remembers the Adelta Rapt of old, who was just this incredibly talented, lazy player, uh, I urge you to to go and look at what he's built for himself at Benfica because it, he's an incredibly impressive player at the moment. Um, mm. But yeah, that is, I'm disappointed in myself, Cameron, uh, on all <laughs> fronts, on all fronts. I should have guessed that Chelsea was was the one that it it was too <laughs> obvious. You know when they're too obvious? It was it was much too obvious. I, I was dangling the lead in front of you. Shall we wrap up this week with well settling the score? Because we've got quite a hot settling the score in store for ourselves this week. Let's do it, yeah. So, moving into the games. First one, we saw Wolves take on Leeds. I predicted 2-1 to Leeds. You predicted 2-0 to Leeds. We were both wrong. It was, in fact, 1-0 Wolves. But I took a point for being slightly closer. I get another point with Southampton versus Chelsea because I predicted 2-1 to Chelsea with you predicting 3-1, final score 1-1. Then things take a turn for the worse, from my perspective at least, as Burnley took on West Brom, you predicted 0-0, I predicted 1-0, the final score was 0-0. Moving into... Three points. Sorry? I'll take my three points. Yes, 3-2 to you. Uh, Liverpool versus Everton. I think this is maybe... The, the proudest moment I've had in settling the score so far, uh, which is uh, I predicted perfectly the, the Everton 2-0 win, which is the first win at Anfield in the Premier League for, for 22 years. So um, chuffed with that. You went for 2-2, I went for 2-0. So 6-2 to me currently. Then- Jürgen Klopp's going to ban our, our podcast at Melwood. <laughs> Much like Dean Smith has <laughs> banned fantasy football. Uh, for the versus Sheffield United, you predicted 1-0. It was 1-0. I predicted a foolish 0-0. West Ham versus Spurs. Again, you predicted bang on. So this is the third one you've got correct this week so far. 2-1 to West Ham against Spurs. I went for a paltry 1-1 like a like an idiot. Um, so you've rocketed into the lead, which you further extend. Villa versus Leicester. You predicted 2-1 to Leicester. I predicted 1-1, the final score. Oh, sorry, you predicted 1-1, I predicted 2-1, so you get a point. I tried to bring it back. Arsenal-Man City, I predicted 2-0, you 3-0, final score 1-0. Uh, 
and Manchester United versus Newcastle, predicting 4-1. You predicted 2-0. The final score was 3-1. You seal the final nail in the coffin with 2-1 Brighton. You predicted 1-1. I predicted 2-1 to Brighton. So, correct. You know, three correct scores. I've got to take my hat off to you. You win by 11 points to 7. Congratulations. I've got to say, not only did I get three correct and you got one correct there, you very nearly got a second one correct with United versus Newcastle. And I nearly got a, a fourth one correct with Brighton and Palace with only a 95th minute goal from Christian Benteke uh, foiling my plans. But that's, between us, nearly got six out of the ten games right. So we should, we should start bad. a podcast, man. Camp, we're ready for the Super Six. <laughs> uh, um, looking at this week's games... Uh, going up to the Monday fixture. Man City versus West Ham is going to be a real exciting clash. Uh, I think it will end 3-0 to Man City. Oh, no, 2-0 to Man City. Oh, okay. I'm going to go 3-0 then. That was going to be my original guess. Okay. Uh, West Brom versus Brighton, I think, will be 1-0 Brighton. Interesting. Uh, see, before Monday night, I would agree with you, but Brighton lost to Crystal Palace at home. So I think I- I'm going to say 1-0 to West Brom. Leeds versus Villa could either be a really muted game where both are playing really defensive sides or it could be just buck wild. Um, Due to the lack of Jack Grealish, I think I'm going to say the former. So I'm going to call this a a 1-1. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in agreement here. I'm going to go for 1-0 to Leeds. Uh, Newcastle Wolves, I think, is going to be 2-1 to Wolves. Very reasonable. I think it's going to be 1-0 to Wolves. Palace-Fulham, again, two sides that have been little perks up here and there. Um, I think it's going to be 2-1 to Palace. I'm going to go for... I'm going to go for 1-1. Leicester versus Arsenal, another big clash. Uh, I think Leicester win this one, and I think they win it 2-0. Yeah, I think um, you can't look past Leicester for this one. I'm going to say 2-1. Spurs versus Burnley. Um, will this be an end to their woes or will the worm eater compound them? Uh, I think they'll do okay. I think they'll win 3 0. You think Spurs are going to win 3 0, that is? Yeah. Wow, no no love for, for the big man, Sean Dyche. Uh, I'm going to guess 2 0 to Burnley. So no love from me either, apparently. You, you're guessing 2 0 to Burnley? No, 2 0 to Spurs. I was going to say, uh, Chelsea versus Manchester United, um, I think is going to be a a, a a win for Chelsea and something that Thomas Tuchel used to put his flag out. I'm going to call this 2-1 Chelsea. Interesting. I, I could see this being, if if there was going to be a Buckwild game, I think it could be this one. I am predicting 2-2. Sheffield United versus Liverpool. There's a part of me that wants to to pack the blades, but I I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, and I hope I'm proved wrong just for the sake of narrative. Uh, but I think it's going to be three one to Liverpool. Reasonable. Uh, I'm going to guess two 0 uh, And wrapping us up, Everton versus Southampton again. Two teams that have had slightly patchy form lately, but after promising starts, uh, I think this is going to be two uh, nil to Everton. I think Everton will come out on top, but I think Southampton will get something for their troubles. 2-1 to Everton. Nice. Uh, That about does it for this week. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone at home for listening. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.